The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a mom to three girls, and I am a CPA. And my name is Eric Hall. I am an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm the father to three teenagers and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. And the proud owner of a new Tron bike on Zwift. 
That is correct. I am. <laughs> Growth has been established. We have uh, pride accepted has accepted the, the defeat. <laughs> accepted the defeat of earning a bike that takes you 50,000 meters of climbing on Zwift to get. Doesn't feel like right. a, that doesn't feel like a defeat. That feels like an accomplishment. Welcome to yeah. the Tron Bike Club, Eric. It's funny. It's funny, George. <laughs> this is, from my recollection, a club that Eric didn't actually want to be a part of. <laughs> a club that he was very dismissive of, as a matter of fact, which may or may not be the reason why I'm bringing it up here right at the outset of this week's podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a manner of making Eric as uncomfortable as possible on the outset <laughs> of the podcast. So I, I, thank you, because all of our friends will listen to this and they will all get a good chuckle out of it. Um, you know, I, it's, it's funny. We, we had that, that realization when Zwift opened the new world. And I think it was you, you of all people, posted the fact that there are actual courses where the Tron bike is not faster than other bikes. Right. And it, and it happened to be the uh, Canyon Grail, which right. is it's, a specific. It's, it's, it's a gravel bike that's actually it's, faster than the Tron bike. Yeah, It's a gravel bike, a bike that I specifically purchased because <laughs> I needed a gravel bike and I wanted the best one. And, and I, uh, so I, I got all excited about that and I started thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe, the, the Zwift people have decided that it, that Tron bike doesn't always have to be the best bike. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think I told you this, like I, I said it just a second ago, like there is a little bit of growth involved here. I, I backed <laughs> off of my hard line. Um, I said, I might actually ride this thing every once in a while. I have not yet. I have not yet, but I, I, I did, of course, as soon as it popped up, cause I, I was just doing a workout and I knew it was coming up. We had talked about it. I knew I was about to hit that climbing um, mark and it popped up after a ride. And I was like, Oh, I got to take a picture of this and send it to my friend. And of course he, <laughs> George says, welcome to the Tron. Bike Tron. You know, that's his response to that. So I don't know. It's, it's just, it's another, it's another horse in the stable. It's another, right. it's another bike to ride. And, um, and I, I can admit, I can admit I've, I've learned to enjoy some of the gaming aspects I have of too. Zwift, but great for you to mention this because I know the next thing you're going to do is you're going to go around the horn and you usually start with Michelle because ladies should go first, but I am going to give you my funny Zwift story right off the bat. Let's hear it. So I'm in, I, I don't remember what day it was, but for some reason Zwift decided to take the pace partners that you can ride with and they ride at a basically a certain power output right it just it gives you like a group of people to ride with you, right. don't, you don't pretty much know any of them but you just ride at that power output and one day for some reason Zwift decided to put them all on a different course than they're usually on mm -hmm. and it was just this loop in Watopia and that day I just had you know my workout was ride for you know 45 60 minutes at 2 30 well so I usually go and get get in with cadence that's like the one of the mid-level level, level c bot c yeah, out of c bot. exactly mm -hmm. the c robot and and i jump on zwift and any of you guys who, who have done this before guys or gals who have done this before when they put you in with a pace partner the very first thing zwift mm -hmm. does is it gives you kind of a power up mm -hmm. and that power up is designed for you to not have to be pedaling before it starts mm -hmm. and you can catch up with everybody so right. you don't get dropped right off the bat they give you a boost they give you a boost. So I get in the game and immediately uh, the little, the little um, confetti can goes off 
and it says it says something about your you set a new PR mm-hmm. and and it took me a while to figure out what happened but basically what happened was Zwift dropped me right at the beginning of a sprint mm-hmm. I was already pedaling and I was pedaling at 230 watts because I, I knew that it was, was coming and I rocked through the sprint mm-hmm. I took two seconds off the, the fastest time on that sprint <laughs> <laughs> and then for the next 60 minutes, I sat at the top of the leaderboard. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's why you can't pay attention to any of the Strava segments on Zwift. <laughs> one of the many reasons, right. one of the many, one of the reasons, many reasons why you can't pay attention to any of that stuff. And right. one of the gaming, you know, the gaming things that I, I don't appreciate, I, I completely inadvertently took advantage of this, but it's like <laughs> one of those things I just don't appreciate. But so. I can say this, you know, I, George, you said it was an accomplishment to get the bike. Yes. I still don't know how or when I'm going to use it, but it's there. It's in the stable. It could mm-hmm. be possible. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out, George. Yeah, man. Well, and, the, and, and so for those who don't know, um, on Zwift, you have a whole bunch of different bikes you can buy. There are literally uh, dozens of bikes that are available in the game, and they all have different speeds and different weights, and some of them are better than other ones, and you have different wheels you can get and all sorts of different things like that. Um, and so it's, it's possible to choose which bike you want based on what it is that you want to, to be riding on that particular day. Um, I, I have not amassed a ton of bikes, but I've definitely amassed a few. Um, and it's definitely a fun aspect of Zwift that, like you said, it's something I've come to appreciate when initially I thought it was kind of silly. And if for no other reason, I've come to appreciate it because, uh, the bike that I've been riding that you all make fun of me about, because I borrowed it from my friend eight years ago. Um, (laughs) he actually texted me today and said, he actually wants it back. So, um, but he gave you no timeline. So, so he did actually give me a timeline. Oh, he did. So I, I, I kept on texting with him. Um, but it was funny. He, he wrote to me and said, how's my Cervelo? And I said, it's good. Um, uh, I said, I've been keeping the cobwebs off of it. Um, but then he writes in and says, um, says, says, I'm, I'm still looking to get it back from me because I want to rebuild it. And I said, that sounds cool. Um, what's the timeline here? Um, and he said, probably over the course of the next month or so or something like that. And I said, well, there's a few paint chips and the dry train is in terrible shape, but, but otherwise the frame is solid. And he said, that's about what I expected after eight years. And I said, all right, that's cool. So he very magnanimously uh, uh, is going to be taking it back from me, despite the fact that I have literally put tens of thousands of miles on that bike since I borrowed it from him eight years ago. So big shout out to yet another guy named Eric that is a friend of mine uh, who let me borrow the bike way back in January of 2013. Um, and I used to train for multiple Ironmans and lots of other things over the course of the last little while. Um, but if any of you know anybody who is looking to sell a bike, I'm going to be looking for a new one pretty soon. <laughs> and it's not a bike that's ever going to go outside. And so if any of you are um, looking to, uh, to, to sell me a bike inexpensively, it doesn't need to have brakes or really anything else like that. I'll probably put my tri bike back on the, the trainer initially first. I might even put a mountain bike on there since I own one of their, those two. Um, but, but we'll see. I haven't quite decided yet. Um, but yeah, no, that's actually for real. Since I, I officially started training for the Berlin marathon this week as well. And so I'm going to need to be spending a lot of time on the bike over the course of the next short while here. And Eric and I are now merely 14 weeks out from the Blue Ridge relay. So that's going to be here before we know it as well too. Michelle, what's going on with you? 
Wait, what are the dates of the Blue Ridge Relay real quick? It's right around September 11th. Um, and okay. so I can't remember what the exact date is, but it's like September 11th, September 12th. It starts on a Friday and then goes through Saturday afternoon. Sure. Um, and then we always hang out in, in Asheville on Saturday night and then come home on Sunday. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's fun. It goes overnight on Friday night, of course. Um, Michelle, what you been up to? Um, so I was going to talk about something that a few listeners of the podcast had asked me if we had discussed and I thought that we had, but apparently we haven't. Um, just wanted to mention that Colleen Quigley, she's a 2016 Olympian in the steeplechase. She ran for Bowerman Track Club for five years. She announced uh, she signed with Lululemon. She's mm. technically what they consider uh, a global ambassador. It's uh, a statement of her both leaving Nike and leaving the Bowerman Track Club. She turned pro in 2015 after she left Florida State, and she's made every world's or Olympic team since in the steeple. And we have not seen her race this year. She's stayed in Oregon for now. She's training with the coach that coached her her senior year at FSU, her fifth year at FSU, um, to the national championships then. And just thought we would throw that out there. I know we've mentioned Allison Felix and now Simone Biles moving from Nike to Athleta. So this is a pretty big sponsorship move. It's a entirely new model. She doesn't have a footwear sponsor. She will be uh, running in quote unquote, blacked out shoes at the Olympic trials. And we haven't seen her race much this year. We haven't really seen her race at all, actually. So it'll be interesting to see what she does. And I just thought I would throw that out there. Um, I wasn't so, going to mention so, this. So, yeah, what, so what is Lululemon giving her for, for being a global ambassador? Like, what does she get for, for, for that? I mean, I mean, it's a full it, sponsorship. Gonna, yeah. It's basically when Nike renegotiated her contract, they offered her less than they offered her when she was coming out of college. So of course the exact amounts of it are not disclosed, but she is, I mean, quote unquote, fully funded by them. She can pick her coach, her coach is paid by them. She's indicated that she plans to move from Oregon to the Los Angeles area after the Tokyo Olympics. And she can of course have, you know, other small sponsors, which is pretty difficult to come by when you're a Nike athlete. I think she's created a big following uh, for her fast braid Friday hashtag and a lot of other stuff she does, uh, especially in the mental health awareness and just a move that I think she probably much like Allison Felix and Simone Biles uh, more feels like a whole person and not just, you know, running for a company that wants her to post results and run a certain number of races per year. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. She joins uh, Jasmine Blocker is also a Lululemon global ambassador. She's a sprinter, track and field athlete. So Colleen is the only distance runner that Lululemon has. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how the relationship develops over the next several years. So um, if people want more Very information cool. about that, there's tons of articles on that. She was immediately on Sidious Mag podcast, Alley on the Run, Seeds Holly Run. There's lots of stuff out there. So that, that seems kind of like that. that's sort of what people are doing now, or at least it's what women are doing, um, is that this is sort of the trend is that they're starting to get contracts like Allison Felix. And we talked about Simone Biles last week and things like that. They're starting to get the, these contracts that, that not only have a more flexibility built into them, but also allow them to pursue like a different one for footwear and a different is I mean am I making that up or is that a trend no, that I think, too, Michelle? I mean I think we're seeing that also we saw Joe Kovacs who's a male thrower <laughs> so not a woman and a field athlete not a track athlete move um away from 
his sponsor. And now he's basically got a new deal with, uh, I think, Duluth Trading Company out of Minnesota. So I think the more, um, the more variety of models we have for sponsorship, the better it is for track and field, the better it is, especially for athletes coming out of college who might not think there is any other option besides, you know, a Nike or Adidas or Asics sponsorship. And generally speaking, you know, not everyone needs to be backed by Nike. I mean, some people really need to just form their own path. And I think for these women specifically, there's a lot to be said about the information that's come out the last few years about the way Nike treats women and the way contracts are written for their female athletes. I mean, I have no idea what Colleen's plans are, but she's been in a relationship for nine years and you could potentially say that the next quad, she might want to start a family. And I mean, at this point, I don't know why anybody would <laughs> want to be a Nike athlete and deal with that. So um, yeah. yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of this more opportunity, you know, more potential for growth in the sport. So I think it's a good thing. So that's kind of a cool thing. I've thought, you know, if you run for Nike, you're expected to be wearing Nikes. You know, you run for Puma, you're expected to be wearing Pumas. And we know that that's not necessarily your favorite shoe. Now, most companies have a shoe that you possibly could run in. Um, but if you're running for a company that doesn't have a shoe, that leaves it open. I mean, and you think about it from a runner's perspective, that is the only real piece of gear that is matters. intimately attached to your body and possibly matters nowadays. So that's kind of cool that she has the choice of whatever shoe she wants to wear, I guess. And I these, do, these, yeah. yeah I mean, all I, these athletes that are not sponsored by Nike or Puma or Connie or, you know, whoever they, they have choice. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. They have choice. I will say I am 99.9% sure that the last few times we've seen Allison Felix run, she's had on a pair of Nike spikes. They're all black. Um, Colleen indicated that in her bout of trying lots of new spikes over the last several months, uh, she kind of exacerbated a case of plantar fasciitis. It calmed down. So she sounded like she was probably going to go back with what she knows works. I think there's also there's only a few spikes to hit the market that are really competitive. Um, we saw that Brooks basically came out and said, you know, just so that our athletes don't lose anything in terms of technology and footwear, our spikes didn't come to fruition fast enough. So we're allowing our athletes to wear yeah. any brand spikes that they want. I mean, this is Brooks running, Which is crazy. telling their yeah. athletes that basically they can go to the Olympic trials and wear Nike shoes on the track. So, um, I, I remember, I remember several years ago when, when Leo Manzano first got sponsored by Hoka. Yeah. Um, Hoka literally did not have a not spike have, yeah. period. They had not yet created them. Um, and so they told him he could wear whatever he wanted to wear as well. Um, yeah. I think we're going to see a lot of Nike footwear at the trials. It'll, you know, I wonder how many are going to be blacked out by Brooks athletes or other uh, athletes. I mean, I would even venture to say that Atlanta track club athletes are, mm -hmm probably going to be wearing a lot of different pairs of Nikes because Mizuno just doesn't have the technology and they want them to start on a level playing field. So sure. Sure. Yeah. I sure. think she does hope to pick up a shoe sponsor. And I think there is also a hope that splitting the apparel and shoe sponsor is a model that, you know, might be able to exist um, within the sport of track and field. We saw it a little bit with Stephanie Bruce. She was a Wazelle apparel and Hoka athlete, but when her team, Northern Arizona Elite, was 
fully sponsored by Hoka. Hoka asked her to wear their apparel also, which is actually rabbit apparel. So that's like a whole other thing. But anyway. <laughs> it, it reminds me of, um, you know, we've talked on here a few times about Jacob Riley, um, who finished second in the uh, the U.S. Olympic marathon trials, the men's Olympic trials um, uh, in, in 2020, last year. Um, and he said going into the trials, he purposely didn't get a sponsor. He was unsponsored going into the trials, even though he was one of the top seeds or he was one of the, the top prospects to make the team because he wanted the freedom to be able to choose the shoes that he wanted to choose um and then after the trials after he had made the team he ended up signing with on with uh, on endurance and and he wears them now um was it emma coburn a couple of years ago michelle who uh was taking her victory lap at the jenny world championship and what'd you say jenny simpson started it Okay. When she put the New Balance spikes over yes, her shoulder. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That is so the most now baller everybody. move of all yeah. time. I love that. Tell that story real quick. Um, so Jenny at Worlds, um, she took a victory lap. And no matter what these athletes are sponsored, no matter who sponsors these athletes, once they get to you know, World Championships, Pan Am Games, Olympics, whatever it is, their kits become fully Nike. So the only brand because Nike has an exclusive deal with USATF to kit them out like until like 2040 or 40 something. something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in order to give, you know, the sponsor, the recognition that they deserve for supporting the athlete, Jenny took her victory lap barefoot and she took her new balance spikes and just tied them together and threw them over her shoulder. So in all of the pictures, she's got her kit, she's got the swoosh and she's got the American flag, but she's got her. She's got a new, new balance sporting, logo yeah. right next to her face. And everybody does that now. <laughs> like it seems that's just kind of the way that it goes. If you're going to love that. I yeah, thought that was like so. the coolest thing ever. Um, um, so very cool. I mean, you do, you do have to wonder why can triathletes <laughs> have a kit that have multiple sponsors on it but usatf and nike i mean nike just it's like they just have this monopoly and it's just not fair to the other companies if you well, get your athlete to the biggest stage and they can't represent you i mean it almost like why are they even sponsoring athletes so you, you remember the of, yeah. you remember the the dream team in the 1992 olympic games you know and i think it was 92 um, and, and of course they had like Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan, even magic Johnson came, uh, came out of retirement and played on that team and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, um, they of course won the gold medal. And when they went to the gold medal ceremony, um, they all draped flags over their shoulders to cover up the logos of whatever the clothing was. It was the official clothing sponsor that outfitted the Olympic team because they all had like really big sponsorship deals and they refused to be seen wearing some other brand. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a new issue by any stretch. I mean, that's 30 years old. Um, and it's, and it's not something that's solely related to track and field for sure. So congrats to Colleen Quiglin on her, her new Lululemon sponsorship. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of other things, uh, uh really quickly. Let me wish both of you a very happy global running day, by the way. Um, so that is today, the day that we are recording the 2nd of June here, uh, recognized by more than 100 countries around the world and celebrated by the Abbott World Marathon majors, celebrated by the Atlanta Track Club and many, many others. The Atlanta Track Club today, as a matter of fact, celebrated Global Running Day by revealing the Peachtree Road Race t-shirt. And um, what do you guys think? 
<laughs> I liked it actually. I liked that it. That was perfect. I, I, I liked it. I, I, I liked it. I just, um, we had a comp. So I shared the, the release, the Atlanta track club release on our Facebook page. And we had a comment on the Facebook page. that said, it kind of looks like all the other PC road race t-shirts recently. And I, and I feel like it kind of does. It um, totally does. And so, so, um, and I don't mind the PC road race t-shirt being a little bit formulaic. It's pretty color of blue. Um, uh, it's got a peach on it. It's got a silhouette of the state. It's got like a road on it. It's got a skyline uh, outline and all that sort of thing. So I think it's a good looking shirt. Um, I do appreciate the fact it says July 3rd and 4th on it, which I know is a dumb detail and it's on both of those days, but they could very, very could have easily could have just put July 4th and they put July 3rd and 4th. And I think that's, that's an important detail, particularly as someone who plans to run it on July 3rd. Um, so, so yeah, they released that today. Um, what did you think, Michelle? Um, I thought it looked very similar to, I mean, I, I even want to go so far as to say, is it the same exact blue t-shirt? That's the blue. I mean, I understand the design and the dates are different, but I feel that the color of the t-shirt is, if it's not identical to last year, it must be the year. Before. No, last year was red. Okay. Was so then the red. year before was that blue? The year, the year before it was a similar design and, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. it looked uh, very familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. I kind of um, felt the same way. I think saying it looked familiar is probably a good way of saying it. it's still a good looking shirt. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, um, I, uh, I will look forward to getting mine because as Rich Kana told us um, on the, uh, on the most pleasant exhaustion podcast about a month ago, he told us they were going to reveal it early. Um, and they did today uh, for the first time. Um, and he told us that, that everybody's going to be getting it ahead of time rather than having this big mass handout at the finish, um, which I think is probably a good thing too. So I will look forward to getting mine. Uh, the video they, they released had all sorts of people that uh, from the Atlanta running community, kind of well-known in the endurance community, including friend of the pilot podcast, Kyle Pease was on there uh, opening up his t-shirt. Uh, Betty Lindbergh was on there opening up her t-shirt who I've always wanted to invite onto the podcast, but I'm totally intimidated and can't bring myself to do it. Um, Let's do it. So, so, Why, really? That's oh, yeah. a good idea. I'm totally intimidated by her. Um, for those who don't know, Betty Lindbergh is a 95-year-old uh, woman who holds all sorts of age group world records and distances from like 100 meters all the way up to, to 10,000 meters. Um, and is just like, just amazing and incredible. And I am such a fan. Um, and I can't bring myself to invite her on the podcast because I'm so intimidated because I'm such a fan of hers. Um, but if anybody listening has an end with her, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we'll see. I have an idea. Um, so, all right, cool. Um, speaking of, of people we want to bring on the podcast and all that sort of thing, we do have um, a couple of guests coming up here pretty soon. Um, we have a Kona qualifier named Tiencia James is going to be coming on over the course of the next couple of weeks. And so we'll be looking forward to that. Um, she qualified for Kona at Ironman Tulsa just a couple of weekends ago. Um, and she has had a long road. And I believe um, that she is the first African-American woman ever to qualify for Kona. Um, which is an incredible commentary on triathlon, frankly. Um, yeah. And so, so we'll be talking to her a little bit about the road that she took. Um, she's coached by a friend of the podcast, Haley Chura. And so we'll look forward to that. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're also going to have our Tour de France preview. Um, we're going to have Justin and Justin coming on talking about what's been going on in the cycling world and uh, see who is going to be uh, who their picks are for the, the, the winners of the Tour de France. Um, Justin Dugan picked the winner 
last year, or at least he mentioned the winner, and he's been holding that over my head for the better part of a year now um, because I ridiculed his pick at the time. Um, and so I will look forward to his coming on um, uh, and uh, Justin Schmidt as well to talk about uh, the Tour de France. Um, and then we're planning on talking about the book of the quarter, uh, Bravey by Alexi Pappas. Um, we're planning to put that podcast out on the 25th of June. Um, and so if you've got Bravey and it's been sitting on your nightstand or if you haven't ordered it yet, you got about four weeks to, uh, to, to, to get that, three or four weeks to get that and to read it. Um, and to uh, to take part in our conversation about that book of the quarter, uh, both of y'all have finished it, right? I'm not done yet. I'm still working on it. Okay. And it's not for lack of liking it. It's just for time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not done either. But okay. I'm I'm surprised because both y'all started earlier than I did. So so I feel I feel okay about the fact that that because I'm I'm not even close. Um, I think you. I get to a point where I don't want to rush the reading of it. Like yeah. I want it to be a time and space where I'm really mm-hmm. like I have nothing else that I want to do besides read it. So yeah, it's um, intense. Yeah, and it it, it has yeah. a um, it has a weird cadence to it where it's kind. Of, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's almost like thick, in the sense yeah. of like there's a it's heavy. I guess heavy is the right word. Like you yeah. get a lot of heaviness and thickness yeah. and then like snap, you're in this totally different topic. It's almost like, mm-hmm. almost like a stream of consciousness. Like, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. I've yeah. actually found it. I just finished the chapter or when I, where I stopped, she had just finished um, telling the story of her 10 K in Rio. Hmm. And I just found that so heavy. It's like jumping back in. I sort of know the next part of the story. I mean, I think that's the whole reason why the book was written so i'm almost like scared to go there it feels like yeah uh, but yeah. i plan to finish it probably not this weekend but next weekend yeah it's gonna get I, good i i think the combination of it being kind of heavy slash intense slash dense um with um the fact that it does jump from one thing to the next like that um combined with the the dramatic irony around knowing some of the story already um and knowing what's coming um, I, I definitely think that, that that sort of forces you to kind of slow down and take it in at a, at a, at a, uh, a more deliberate pace. Um, and that's kind of where I am. Uh, and there's definitely a few things that she's described in the book so far um, that I've had to kind of stop and digest and chew on for a day or so, you know, yeah. which is good. I mean, that makes for a good book, right? Um, but, but yeah, it's not like light bedtime reading by any stretch. Um, no. I mean, you, 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 you see that Maya Rudolph writes the introduction, um, and you're like, oh, it must be kind of fun. It's not a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a lot of fun with this book yet, <laughs> you know, um, but, but, but it is good. Um, and I'm glad we're reading it. Um, and the issues that it brings up are definitely, topical um and they're, they're definitely timely um i think we saw a reminder of that this week with uh, naomi osaka right um so for folks who missed that um uh, naomi osaka is a japanese tennis player who lives in the united states um and she was playing in the french open this past week and it's the second big grand slam tournament of the year um and it's a tournament where she has struggled in the past now she's still a pretty young tennis player she's only 23 years old she's actually the highest paid female athlete in the world right now um but uh she has struggled we came to find out with uh with 
pressure and with bouts of depression. Um, and this kind of came out over the course of the past week or so because she left the French Open. Um, she said before the French Open started, um, we're required to go to these press events and I don't like the press events and they mess with me mentally and they push me off of my game and they compromise my enjoyment of this entire tennis endeavor. So I'm not going. Um, and the French Open says to her, well, you have to go. This is part of being a pro athlete in, in the French Open or at any other major Grand Slam. And she says, I'm not going to go. She plays her first match. She wins her first match. She's supposed to go. And she skipped it like she said she was going to. So the French Open in response says, well, we're going to fine you $15,000. And so she said, OK. And she pays her $15,000 and she dropped out of the tournament. Um, which is not really the outcome that I think that anybody was looking for. And she posted on Instagram um, a fairly long thing where she said, I'm sorry I had to drop out. I feel bad about that. I hope I didn't inconvenience anybody. I know the timing's not great, um, but I've had these long bouts of depression dating back to the U.S. Open in 2018. Um, and, and they're made worse by the press conferences that I'm required to undergo. Um, forcing us to go to these press conferences where reporters will ask us questions that often have very little to do with the game of tennis. Um, and, and they probe and abuse and make me feel even worse about my performances on clay. Um, she says, this is an outdated way of going about um, interacting with the people and promoting the sport. Um, and, and I'm just not going to take part in it this time. Um, and so she left. Um, she was criticized for it. Um, the, uh, the WTA, the World Tennis Association said professional athletes have a responsibility to their sport and to their fans to speak to the media surrounding their competition, allowing them the opportunity to share their perspective and tell their story. Um, several tennis officials, including the head of the U.S. Tennis Association, the USDA, said, we want to underline that rules are in place to ensure that all players are treated exactly the same, no matter their stature, beliefs, or achievement. As a sport, there's nothing more important than ensuring no player has an unfair advantage over another, which unfortunately is the case in this situation if one player refuses to dedicate time to participate in media commitments, while the others all honor their commitments. Um, she got really heavily criticized by some commentators um, in and around the sport. Um, and of course, some people that don't really even follow tennis all that closely, but just thought that she was being um, bratty or even petulant, one person uh, said. Um, she's gotten sort of mixed responses from her fellow tennis player, Serena Williams, um, who of course is one of the greatest athletes and, and tennis players of all time um, said, I feel for Naomi and I wish I could give her a hug because I've been in those situations. You have to let her handle it the way that she wants to in the best way that she can. Um, and then Pam Shriver, who's a, a former player and the president of the WTA Tour Players Association said, I feel for her and I feel for the sport in general has mishandled this. I just feel that Grand Slam statement poured fuel on the flames in a way that was irreversible. I feel they should have kept their views and efforts quiet, not made them public and work behind the scenes, all the more so because the pandemic is still the elephant in the room has been so hard on so many young people. Um, so kind of a lot there. I just threw at you at this story about, about Naomi Osaka that I did want to talk about and does fall in line with all the different things that we're reading about in uh, Alexi Pappas's book, uh, Bravey. Um, what'd you think, Michelle? Um, I think I'm not at all surprised by uh, French Open, Roland Garros, just basically saying pay your fee and these are the rules and we're not making any exception. I think generally speaking, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the French have rules and I don't like of all four Grand Slams, I would see them to be the least likely to, you know, make any sort of pathway for her, at least in this moment. I don't know if it's something that could have been uh, discussed or negotiated beforehand. It seems like if there was a potential for this to be a problem, you know, maybe she could have discussed it before she accepted the appearance fee or agreed to come. But I think what um, that aside, what I'm most happy to see is that her sponsors are really, really, really supporting her decision to just stand up for herself and put her mental health first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a, it's not not a big deal to withdraw from the French Open, especially when you're perfectly healthy. But I've seen she's not support. perfectly healthy. That's kind of the point. Well, I mean, physically healthy. Right. Okay. So um, I would say that the support that she's had from Nike and MasterCard and TagHure has been really, really great to see. And I think that it's unfortunate that this circumstance, you know, played out the way that it did. But I think literally this specific incident is probably going to result in some type of change, um, you know, whether it's requirements to attend a press conference. I mean, I don't understand the press conferences, maybe after round of 16 or something. Um, But like she said in a lot of her articles, they're literally asking her the same questions that she's been asked over and over and over. And, you know, you have four rounds to get through before you even get to anything worthwhile who might even make it, you know, into the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. So I would like to see, uh, you know, I don't know that we'll ever see an apology issued, but I think in the same way that we've talked about Nike changing their contracts for women yeah. and, you know, maternity and stuff like that, the proof will kind of be in the pudding as to what does this look like a year from now for these players when they go back for the French Open? Will the press conference requirements be changed? You know, can a player opt out up to a certain round, so to speak. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure, especially in the early rounds and, you know. Yeah, so to, to say, I mean, so first of all, I agree with you about the French Open. Like, I, I, I feel like they were painted into a corner and so I don't necessarily blame them for saying, hey, you have to pay $15,000. Like, I don't, that that sure. was what they had set up. The, quest, the question is what's gonna happen now. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in her Instagram post, she actually linked a video to a Marshawn Lynch um, interview that was pretty famous that was around the Super Bowl where he was required to go and he basically sat there and didn't answer any questions and then somebody said hey are you mad about something he says I'm just here so I don't get fined and so like this this process of requiring athletes to go to press conferences where they get asked inane questions um, is it's across sports um, and it's kind of like a mainstay inside of sporting culture in the United States. Um, and, and athletes universally hate it. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I think- so, so, so I, th- I think one of the things that's interesting about her is that she, she's not just saying, Hey, I'm not going because I hate it because it's stupid. She's right. going because she's saying, look, I have some mental health issues and this makes it worse. And by the way, women get treated much more poorly than men do. Studies have literally demonstrated it. Um, sure. in these press conferences that, that they get asked questions about the clothing they wear and their relationship status and, and, and all sorts of other things like that, that men don't even have to suffer through that. And men still hate it. Um, yeah. I also think if you agree with, and I, and I don't think anybody disagrees with the fact that the mental emotional preparation uh, for any type of oh, for sure. you know, match if, at this level, whatever the sport is, it doesn't matter. Um, if this is something that breaks that down for an athlete, you know, 
if the mental game, and I think in tennis, it's probably more than 50% of the physical game. Um, if this particular, you know, structure breaks that down and takes away from an athlete's ability to maintain that, then it should really be looked at and evaluated because, you know, why strip the athlete of something right off the bat that, yeah. uh, they're spending I, months I, and months yeah. working on. And, you know, we have professional sports psychologists and she's out front saying she's been dealing with depression. So, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like she was already worn down and, the French open just beat her down even more. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and the prospect of having to go into that press room and have them ask these questions of her that she knew were going to trigger some of her mental issues was something that she's not okay with. You know, they've been talking about for years in the tour de France um, and in the grand tours that part of the difficulty of being the race leader is that you are then obliged to do all of these press events and all of these drug tests and all these other things like that. Now they should have to do the drug test. Um, but, but part of, of literally managing the challenge of the tour de France is, is trying to manage the pressures that come with wearing the leader's Jersey in the tour de France. And there are many, many times when the people who want to win will purposely not take the lead or will let somebody else maintain their lead in the race so that they don't have to take part in all of the required activities of the leader of the Tour de France, and therefore they can save energy and be able to perform better in the latter part of the, the, the race. So to me, anytime you're starting to say that, hey, this is something you have to manage in order to, to, to promote your, your athletic performance, this is part of, of doing it. Um, and, and that the person who's able to manage those responsibilities is going to ultimately have a better chance than the, of winning than the person who might actually be the better cyclist. That, that, that seems flawed. Uh, yeah. Eric, you haven't been talking much. What do you think? I was going to go down that route that you were just headed. Cause if, when you read the quote about, you know, what did, what did the tournament say? The tournament said that she may have gained an advantage by not participating in those events so in, in yeah. essence and i think she would have i think they're right about that yeah it, it's admitting the fact that those events have a toll they take a toll on the athletes so i think that's understood and it's still expected so i think the i do like your proposition we should be gauging the athlete on their performance in the sport um and i i because I, I think that's the truest way to say who's the best, which is what this is really about. Um, but I think that might be a slippery slope to say, like, what is the sport? W what encompasses the, okay. the, the event? And, and, and yeah. in the French Open's point, the event includes the yeah. press conference that you will all participate in. Right. But you brought in a really good one, you know, Tour de France. That one guy, you know, the climber, the sprinter, and the yellow jersey are getting so much more press time than anybody else. And the yellow mm -hmm. jersey more than any of the others. Right. And, and they have to be able to manage that. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it's almost like you said, it's, it could be a detractor to be the winner of mm -hmm. the day. And then it gets into strategy. I think tennis has a little, a lot, a lot less of that. Mm -hmm. I think it really does. Yeah. But then you get into like, okay, well, I have a contract with X 
company and it requires me to do Y number of things. Well, this other person has a contract with this other company that is, you know, Y minus 10 things. So I now have a competitive advantage over that. You know, what, what constitutes preparation and mental capacity? And like, I don't know, it's just, that's a complicated one. Yeah, I think, but I, I really liked what one of the two of you said right at the beginning was, okay, this happened. Is this a groundbreaking event? Mm-hmm. Does this change something down the road? And, but just this time it didn't work out. And I think those are, those are the kind of thoughts where these like very uh, tactical almost maneuvers by an athlete may not ever, sh- sh- they may never benefit from the fruits of that labor, but other athletes can. And we've yeah. seen that time and time again, outside of sports, inside of sports and, and I think that's, that's the bigger thing here because, you know, especially in reading that book, Bravey, and I didn't say this while you were kind of talking about it, but we had, uh, I've had two of our friends of uh, people who you and I both know, and I don't know if they've talked to you about this, but they've read it. And what touched them about the book was not the running part. That's cool. So yeah. I, I think this is a big deal. And I think that maneuvers like this, comments like this, and I think they're positive, are changing sport in general. And I think that's important because I would rather the best tennis player win. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how to really achieve that, but I would rather the best tennis player win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, the counter argument that somebody would say is, well, the best tennis player is the one who's able to manage all of these pressures, right? During, um, during the so, event. So, 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 during- so and, 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 I, and I don't believe that. I'm just saying that's the counter argument no, no, and, and that, that, I, that I can hear some people making. Um, but, but yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you on that, but, but I, I do think, um, I do think we will see. I think that her saying specifically that it's outdated, that this model of you come off the court, you grab something to drink, you go sit down in front of these microphones and subject yourself to a whole bunch of questions. This mo- I mean, that's such a time honored part of the sporting process for her to say that that's outdated. I think that's really interesting um, because frankly, a lot of the criticism I've seen from her, uh, seen, seen of her by other people, there was a, there was a op-ed in the Washington post or in the New York times that basically said, Hey, everybody else has had to deal with this. Pete Sampras had to deal with this. Billie Jean King had to deal with this. Serena Williams had to deal with this. Now you have to deal with it. And it's like, that's not a good that's not a good rationalization. Not a good argument. It's not that, a good that, like, yeah. the, It is a rationalization. It's yeah. not a good argument. The, 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 I mean, and, and this comes from somebody who, who you know, I, I'm a professor and I study American schools and I see all the time people saying, oh, well, if it was good enough for me and this is what I had to do in school, even if I hated it, now it's what my kids are going to do. And that drives me insane. Um, and so, so I do think that, that her saying, saying it's outdated and we need to come up with a new way, I think that's interesting. Um, and, and I would be, I don't, I don't know what that new way would be, but I'm inclined to agree with her. And that argument, that characterization resonates with me. How did Tour de France athletes used to fuel the morning before right? riding right? steak and eggs, right? If that can change, <laughs> then, you know, Isles we can probably change this too. <laughs> I mean, cause, and, and you're totally right about that. Um, the bikes have changed, the jerseys have changed, the communications have changed, the, the event itself has changed. And so the idea that we need to, to keep this because we've always had it, I, I don't think that's required. Um, yeah. All right, get the last word on this, Michelle, and then we're going to move on. The only thing I think as we talk about <laughs> French Open and Tour de France is 
most of the ultra runners biggest complaints with the UTMB week in pretty much the weekend preceding the race are the pre-race requirements that they have from their sponsors in Chamonix and how you know, moderating their commitments, their sponsor commitments and the press conferences, and they have to be at this booth and that booth. A lot of them, you know, it takes away from their ability to perhaps run their best race. So Long I know this is not, the same thing about Kona. yeah, I know this is not an issue isolated to just events in yeah. France. Maybe they just have the best fans out there for all the greatest sports, but yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, we need to take a look at all the extenuating circumstances that, can inhibit an athlete's best performance on race yeah. day. So match no, day. I try triathletes have been saying that about Kona for years as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm sure. Because, because the, the, I mean, it's the same with UTMB. It's the same with Tour de France um, because so much is focused. I mean, that's a center of that universe and, and the triathlon universe and particularly the ultra running universe don't get a lot of attention from time to time. And so for it to have this one event where everybody's looking at them, they have to try and take as much advantage of that to try and promote the sport and, and for sponsors to try and promote their brands as much as they possibly can. Yeah. Um, I get She's that. Young. I think but we'll see. I, I was just going to say contrary to what maybe a little bit what Eric said. I mean, I think she's young enough that this is going to change something and hopefully, yeah. you know, she'll benefit from whatever change comes about. And if it's a ripple effect to other sports for other athletes and their, you know, uh, commitments to press conferences or pre-race type events, then great. <laughs> it's, you know, it's horrible that she had to go through what she's having to go through right now and the way that it's played out. But a year or five years from now, if it's really affected change in sport all across multiple sports, you know, I think she, she'll probably look back and be pretty happy with her decision, so. I think I probably would be too. So very Agreed. good. And, and one final point, and we don't need to go deep into this, but we crap on Nike a lot for its treatment of athletes. I think I actually heard Michelle at the beginning of this. Oh yeah, they're major supportive of her. Same, very supportive of this. Yeah. And I think it's funny because we we had this chat earlier in the week about how we, you know, we're big, we're in the Puma fam, right? We're all, we're all excited <laughs> about Puma. And what do what does Puma go and do? Neymar. Like they, they go and pick up Neymar. They go and pick up Neymar. And if, if you, if you're not, we, we don't need to get into the story, but um, if you're not familiar, go check on Neymar and see what kind of athlete he is mm-hmm. and what kind of person he's he is outside of, of his, and what, yeah. yeah. And what he might be made of and how Puma took advantage of that situation when Nike dropped him. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is a great turn. I would love to wear Nikes again someday. I'm not there, but maybe. <laughs> right on, right on. I appreciate you mentioning that. And I think that was worth dropping in there, Eric. Um, Tell us, Michelle, about Herb Kessler, Hobbs Kessler, Herb Kessler, Hobbs Kessler. (laughs) Uh, I got to get his name right because we're going to be talking about him for a long time. I do. I do think it is important for everybody to know the name Hobbs Kessler. We Mm -hmm. saw another weekend of lots of uh, track and field events, specifically at the Portland Track Festival. Um, He is a high schooler. He ran 1,500 meters in 334.36 that is under the Olympic God. qualifying time of 3:35. It is hard to emphasize how fast that is. is. He came in fifth place in the race. It's a it's a 3:51 mile for a high schooler. If that helps anybody wrap their minds around it a little bit more. Um, I also just, if you watch the race, it's totally worth watching the replay of the last hundred meters. He looked like he could have gone. He just could have kept going. Um, to me, that indicates gosh, there's probably more in the tank there, but I think he stole the weekend in terms of race highlights. 
I loved reading about him and learning more about him because he was actually um, a world-class junior rock climber. And his coach, who is basically legendary Michigan coach. Uh, Ron Warhurst. Ron, yeah. Gosh, mm-hmm. is he like 80 years old now? He's <laughs> I mean, is he? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Someone, someone check that and let us know. But uh, I'll check it. He is um, very big into Hobbs not having completely quit rock climbing. He actually thinks that his strength and his stamina that he has on the track as he shifted over the last four years away from international and national competition at the junior level and rock climbing has really helped him to progress to be the track athlete uh, that he's become. So I liked hearing him. He was on a Sidious Mag. He was on the Sidious Mag Mag podcast that dropped today. Um, He sounds like a high school guy, (laughs) but he did say that he is interested in coming back to rock climbing, um, hopes to climb some 515s someday when he has weeks and weeks to go live in Spain and do nothing else but climb. But yeah, it yeah, was so, so a race uh, worth watching. For sure. And I'll add a few things about it here. So first of all, I'll say that Ron Warhurst is, is 78 years old. Oh, I was um, close. And, and Ron, Ron Warhurst has coached Alan Webb, who is the, uh, the, the high school mile record holder in the United States. The outdoor mile, because the indoor mile, 357 high school record holder is Hobbs Kessler, um, which he ran this past winter. Um, uh, he's coached Kevin Sullivan. He's coached Nick Willis. He's coached all sorts of Olympians and fantastic runners. And he, he says still Hob- coaches Nick Willis. He still coaches Nick Willis. Who Nick Willis, who is Hob Kessler's Hobbs Kessler's training partner, and who right. Hobbs Kessler beat in this fifteen hundred uh, this past weekend. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he says that that Hobbs Kessler is the most talented runner that he's ever seen. Um, and that is no faint praise. Nick Willis actually says that the fact that Hobbs Kessler is still so new to it is probably a strength because he says he's kind of naive about it. Like he doesn't know that he's supposed to run this fast. He doesn't know that he, he it, it's sort of weird for him to finish with the third fastest time in the United States so far this year in the 1500. He doesn't know that he's not supposed to finish fifth in a pro field. Um, he doesn't know that he's not supposed to run faster than the NCAA record in the 1500. He doesn't know that he's not supposed to break a 20 year old record by four seconds in the high school 1500. Actually, it's not. 20 well, years, actually, like 50 he old, was so. going for he was going to try to run 37. So, yeah. But and he, runs, he ran 34. He runs, faster than that. He, runs no. a, a sec, he runs a second per lap faster than that. I will say that my, you know, I do feel like we will see really good stuff from him for years to come. I think Mm -hmm. he's heading to NAU for college. And I feel, uh, I think we've talked a lot about the NAU coach. You know, I think it's a good transition for him with a coach that will hold him back as much as he can. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, we'll see him, even if he doesn't make it out of the rounds at the Olympic trials, it'll still be great experience for him. And I'm sure three years from now should be pretty fun to follow him. So, right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. He, he is headed to, uh, to Northern Arizona, like you said. And so we've been talking about how he's currently being coached by 
um, by Ron Warhurst from the University of Michigan. The reason why he's currently coached by by Ron Warhurst from the University of Michigan is because he's from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He goes to community high school in Ann Arbor, which is like this small high school that's very innovative and project based and, and, and has a lot of attention inside education circles. So this is actually the second time in this podcast so far I've actually flipped into education professor George. Um, and so I, I, I very much thought it was funny. I was like, oh, community high school. How about that? That's pretty funny. Um, but but it very much falls in line with the fact that he wouldn't focus entirely on running and instead would be like a champion rock climber and have this sort of eponymous high school experience because that's what community high school is all about. But yeah, he'll head out to northern Arizona or he's slated to head out to northern Arizona this fall and be coached by Mike Smith and with their amazing cross-country team that's won what three out of the last four men's cross-country championships um and so so yeah i think he'll definitely have a lot of people to run with out there so very cool um very cool uh how 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 long could you keep up with him you think eric uh, 150 meters. <laughs> <laughs> That's about 140 meters longer than I could. <laughs> yeah, if I had a running start and he had to start, from if they the dropped you in like on Zwift, they dropped me in. A, I might get 170 meters out of him on a bike if they dropped me in. Yeah, incredible. So yeah, like we said, remember the name um, because because that was pretty incredible. Other other race news you want to share with us, Michelle? Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, we've read a lot and talked a lot, or maybe as little as we could over the last uh, few years about the female athletes uh, that have higher levels of circulating testosterone than uh, the IAAF wants to see in competition. They're antigen sensitive. Um, the entire 800 meter uh, gold, silver, bronze medalist from 2016, uh, three women fell into this category. And basically there's been all these, you know, um, rulings that have come out and came down and said they actually can't race in events um, from the 400 meters to the 1500 meters. So a lot of these women uh, decided to, you know, they filed appeals and it went to the court of arbitration. And we've talked about this in incredible detail on previous posts. Yeah. But, yeah. Speci- specifically, we've talked about Castor Semenya, um, yeah. who was the gold medalist in the 800 and around whom a lot of these conversations have centered, but she is not the only um, athlete who finds herself in this situation. Yeah. So we just saw within the last 24 hours, uh, the 2016 Olympic 800 meter silver medalist, Francine Niansaba, she ran the Olympic qualifier in the 5K. Uh, She ran a 14.54 today. She debuted the 5K a week ago and ran a 15.10. So that's a pretty significant drop for her. It punches her ticket to Tokyo. Uh, She had an Instagram post about how she wasn't going to be defeated by, you know, rules and regulations. Um, She also wasn't going to, you know, adhere to any testosterone suppressing measures that would allow her to compete in the 800 or 1500, which would have obviously been more ideal for her. She is predominantly an 800 meter runner. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that as George said, most of everything we've read has revolved around Castor Semenya, uh, South African Olympic gold medalist. Uh, She has tried the 5K. Uh, She's thus far only run 1532. And that is, as it is, in and of itself, 22 seconds off of the Olympic qualifying time standard for her to be able to compete in Tokyo. So, um, you know, pretty newsworthy. I think there's a lot of debate about whether we should just let these 
women run, whether it's really not fair because the rest of the field doesn't have a chance against them. Um, but I guess kudos to them. You know, the IAAF said, no, you can't run. And they said, okay, well, we'll just try a new event and see how good we can be. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see whether this ends up, um, um, reigniting this conversation a little bit, because I do think that it's kind of faded. Um, well, Caster I, just, she has another appeal right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, she, I think she realized that she can't get that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, 15, 10 Olympic qualifier time. Um, yeah, so yeah. I think this is going to come back pretty, you know, gonna, she's going to light a fire under this again yeah. and try one more time. So. Well, I, but, I, but I, I think that, I think that the Francine's performance though, probably has more of a potential to reignite this conversation than Castor's ongoing yet again appeal. Because um, Francine has now just qualified. And you remember, like you just said, the, the, uh, the studies that were undertaken by World Athletics, um, then, the, uh, uh, then under a different name, but by, by the governing body of, of uh, track and field, of World Track and Field, said that the only events where you get a manifest difference benefit, uh, yeah. benefit in this is events right around 800 meters and the pole vault. And they didn't apply the rules to pole vaulters for reasons that we don't entirely understand, but they did apply it to the 400 through the 1500. Um, well, now Francine has gone and qualified in the 5,000 meters. Good so do for you her. think that hurts but, or helps uh, Caster? So I, I, I don't think it'll have a very specific influence on caster um but i don't know the question for me is whether the iaaf is now going or world athletics is going to now circle back and be like oh snap this person we that we thought that we had list? ruled out this person we thought that we had been able to successfully exempt is now qualified for the 5,000 meters and is potentially going to be running the 5,000 meters in the olympic games do we need to re-examine and find some new science um that's what I'll be interested to see whether that happens. And, and, and that would definitely be a reignition of a lot of these conversations. I will say though, I mean, a 1510 and dropping to a 1454 a week later, I think there's, you know, room to move, but we're going to see a plethora of women that can run under 1430 for the 5k if the Olympics go fast. So whereas when we saw these three women run the 800 meters in Rio and the years before and after, I mean, they were running times that were just untouchable, you know, by, by the rest of the group. I mean, mm -hmm. they were meters ahead of them. So this seems to be a, a time that is definitely world-class, but maybe more on a level playing field with, mm -hmm. I don't know, a dozen to a dozen and a half women who can run the 5k right now. And that's, and that aligns with right. the science that the world athletics cited when sure. they right. extended this ban only to those few of middle, right. few middle Which distance is, events. Right? right. I guess I should um, qualify this to say, I think this is bad for casters appeal because mm -hmm. I think it just proves that, um, you know, the rules that they put in place and the reasons behind them maybe sound least with, at least with this one case study are, mm -hmm you know, pretty backed by science and yeah, sound is a good one. What, what will happen, Michelle, <laughs> if the 5,000 meters in Tokyo, presuming that the Olympics happen this summer, turns into a tactical affair and it's a kicker's battle <laughs> and Francine, the silver medalist four years ago, five years ago in the 800 meters is in the hunt. I mean, you would 200 be- 200 meters to go. 
if you're a contender for a medal in the 5k, you would be crazy <laughs> to have her anywhere yeah. near you or near the lead with yeah. 600, 400 meters to go. I agree. Wow. I agree. But I, but I, but I think that that scenario playing itself out, I, I think that would be a very provocative and evocative yeah. scenario. I think we see tactical almost always. Right. I just think everybody is on a mission now to run fast. It'll be so interesting to see if everything returns to tactics once people get to the Olympics. That'll actually we'll be, see. yeah. Yeah, the, the Olympics, it doesn't matter. <coughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. The NCAA um, outdoor track and field championships are coming up, and that might give us an indication to some athletes' general mindset. Um, because the NCAA championship, just like the Olympic championship, it doesn't matter how fast you run. It matters whether you win. I mean, there's a lot of NCAA athletes that have qualified for trials this year, probably right. more so, so, so than there's any no other reason year. for them to try and run fast. So if they can get away with tactical and they can save their legs for, you know, a three week extension of their season to make it to trials at the end of this month, then they should definitely run tactical. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see whether they do. Uh, so we, we, we will test the theory um, coming up here pretty soon. Um, and then, of course, we'll see what ends up unfolding in the Olympic Games. All right. So I talked about Naomi Osaka. Um, uh, Michelle talked about a couple of really interesting things related to racing right now. Eric wants to talk about shoes. Bring it to us, tech guy. Tell us what your shoe situation is. So my shoe situation is I always have more shoes than I can run in. Uh, <laughs> and just like the two of you, there are always more shoes that I want to run in than I own. 100%. Yeah. So, but so this this shoe that I'm going to talk about, this is a long time coming for me to get this shoe, and it's the Sakani Endorphin Speed, and it, it it's been so, it was so long in me getting a hold of a pair of these shoes that we're now on the tip of having the Endorphin Speed Two right. come out, which comes you out. Know, you can say oh, right, you can say we're behind the times and all that, but. In looking at the specs for the Pro 2, which I can get a hold of and seeing what little is out there about the Speed 2, I think the shoes are very similar. And I think they addressed the one thing that bugged me about this shoe, that bugs me about the shoe, the one thing. And it is, it is small, but it is one thing that bugs me about the shoe. Yeah, it's the laces. So let me, let me just kind of give you the, the, the quick on this. First off, uh, the reason why I waited to get this shoe is my daughter, Grace, works at Fleet Feet, and they didn't have them in stock. So every day she went to work, and she was, she was in high school, so she's only working on the weekends. She would message me, they're not in. They're not in. They're not in. And then you guys remember, it was about three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, I, she, she messaged me, they're in. I was there in like seven and a half minutes. <laughs> they were on my feet and then I was in the car taking a picture of them and I sent them to the two of you because I'd been waiting for these <laughs> shoes for so long. Now, what's funny is I go into the store and the endorphin speed, it's the middle shoe of a three shoe lineup, right? Mm, right. Um, I can't even think of what the, 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 the shift, the shift, the, shift. the, shift shift, and the pro, the speed and the pro. Right. right? And, and so in the Sakani came out with these three shoes that they, they look the same, um, but they have different uses and they're sort of geared towards the type of running you're doing from the shift being kind of your daily trainer, the speed kind of being your fast trainer racer. And then the pro being the pro, you know, the racing shoe, the carbon plated um, racing shoe. Right. Yeah. But this, so many things culminated here perfectly. Grace is at work. The shoe is in stock. I had a gift card from a good friend. <laughs> 
And James, who I had been coaching, had just bought a pair of the pros to run potentially his marathon in, which I get to segue really quickly. Out I was going to say, did James, James broke back. the three-hour marathon barrier, right? We've talked about did. James before. James went out. He broke the three-hour barrier. Right he didn't just break it. He shattered it. He ran 256.50. Awesome. Um, I was lucky enough to get to run about 13 of those. No, I'm sorry. I ran about nine of those miles with him. I ran 13 miles total to try to beat him to the finish, to run in with him. But he ran so fast, he beat me to the finish. <laughs> finish and I, I thought he blew up, but no, he didn't. He he, he ran 256.50 and he was done. And he did it in the pro. Mm -hmm. So I'll get back to that in just a second. But so here, here we go. Just the quick and dirty on the shoe. Runner's World, Editor's Choice 2020. Best in gear from Believe in the Run 2020. This is a 7.8 ounce shoe, eight millimeter drop, pretty high stack height, 35 and a half in the back, 27 and a half in the front. And I'll tell you, when I put them on my feet, the first thing I thought was, these are really weird. And I thought, I have made a mistake buying these shoes. Because what it feels like is there's like a half ball or like a hemisphere sitting under the ball of your foot. And it almost makes them feel unstable. In fact, the first two runs I ran in them, I have about 44 miles on these shoes. The first two runs I ran in them, I, I kind of felt like they were a little too unstable for me. And I'm not a wobbly, like I'm not bow-legged like our friend Lee. I don't run on the outsides or the insides <laughs> of my feet like some of the other guys we know that run that have flat feet. I'm a pretty neutral runner but they felt a little weird, almost unstable. And I asked James about it because he's got the pros and he said, yeah, I kind of feel that too, but I, I think he had gotten over it. What you're feeling is this speed roll technology that they have in the shoe. And it, it kind of snaps your foot forward. You, you hit on your heel and it snaps your foot forward and it, it just gives you like this movement forward. Mm -hmm. But if you're walking around in them, they feel weird because yeah. this shoe does not like to go slow. It wants you to be at that for me about like the 75 to 80% of your kind of 5k race pace, or maybe your 10k race pace. Um, this shoe has the full length plate in it. It's not a carbon plate in the speed. The pro has the carbon plate. Um, it's also not like the Skechers wings that are kind of on the edge and then they stick across the middle. Mm -hmm. It's a full length. I think they call it an S shaped plate. Mm -hmm. A nylon plate. Not and it is nylon. It is not carbon. Um, it has a Piba-based foam in it. It's it's a. Uh, I liken it to my Boston's, which the Boston Nine is my favorite shoe. I still can't say I found another shoe that's better than that shoe, kind of all around. The Adidas but Boston Nine. The Adidas Boston Nine. That is correct. But um, but the foam feels a lot like those. And what I mean by that is when I'm running, they feel similar. And then the, a day after running. I feel similar after the same type of effort. I don't feel all beat up like I used to in some of the other shoes I run in. Um, it's got a nice engineered mesh upper and it's shaped to fit my feet fairly well. Um, but, and we get to the one complaint I have is the laces. There are too many laces on this shoe for the way the upper is set up, which is funny because if you've heard me talk about the Adidas Boston 9, I like how there's so many laces on that shoe because it really snugs around your foot. This has a weird, it's just a weird way it, the laces tug around your foot. And then the tongue has this little goofy strappy thing somewhere on the tongue. And no matter what I do, it always gets bunched up as I lace up the shoes. 
And I don't even know what the purpose of that little thing is. I've never read anything about it. It looks like something where you might be able to, if you fished it up, stuff your, you know, wrapped laces under it. So it, they don't like flop, um, but it's under across of the laces. And I, I, so the laces are a problem for me. Can I help you with this? I just yeah. want to, I just want to yeah. put you scissors. I want to bring you peace that when the speed two comes out on July 15th, the lacing has been changed. From Believe in the Run, lacing has been changed to create more volume and width across the throat and keep the, quote, expansion across the top of your foot more normal versus shrinking down for us narrow footers. That, combined with the excessively firm heel counter on occasion, would flare up a spur. Some people, blah, 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 blah. So they've there made very few changes to the version two of this whole endorphin line. But the one major change they made to the speed is with the laces. So you're in good company to be frustrated by them. Evidently. I, that makes me feel better. So now, okay, one last tell, thing tell, about the shoe. Okay, yeah, go ahead. And then I have one a question last thing about the shoe before I talk about like running in the shoe. So I am going to talk about running in the shoe. But the one last thing about the shoe is it's got that um, a really light um, outsole on the bottom, minimal coverage. And I love that. Still grippy, but I love that. I love that minimal coverage um, on the bottom with the, the rubber. So what was your question, George? I, I, well, I was going to ask about how a, a part about the feel of, of running on it. I'm, I'm actually looking at the pictures of that minimal yeah. rubberage at the bottom and all that sort of thing as you're talking here. And I'm trying to find the shot of that that piece that you evidently really dislike, but they perhaps purposely downplay it here. I in will the, send uh, it to you. I will the, take a picture. Uh, and so, send it so. all right, cool. But um, so, but, uh, but they're changing it, so maybe you don't need to. Um, yeah. But but tell us about running it, because that's actually what I'm curious about. Yeah. So I said earlier, they don't like going slow. It feels weird. You feel wobbly. Once you get up to that 75 to 80% and you're, you roll a little bit more on your toes, that speed roll technology starts really helping you out. And I found this out every time I ran in them. Um, if I'm going slow and like I run on the edge of the road, I felt like I had to stay away from where the road dropped off. And I certainly didn't want to get in the grass because it was just too unstable. But once I got up to speed you know, and I was, cause I, I generally, well, I only wear these for, you know, faster efforts. All of that went away and they feel super stable. Uh, very, very, uh, it's a confident shoe. Once you get up there, um, I'd say on the flats, they're fast cause they want to be fast. They, they kind of push you to go faster on the Hills. I did a, I did a, a two, one mile Hill, uh, repeat last night. Um, and I felt great. And I, I do attribute some of the, 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 that, the, the, I want to call it the success of that run to the shoes. Um, so I feel like uphills, they're fast. I will admit on the downhills, still a little bit of that weirdness comes back. And I think it's because I tend to back off my toes on the downhill. So I'm on that kind of wobbly part of the shoe a little bit. I'm moving towards the heels some, um, but I, I kind of got over that, you know, after, um, a couple of the downhills yesterday because I had three kind of long downhills yesterday on the third one. I wasn't thinking about it anymore. Um, but I think a couple things are important about this. And one of the things is I think you need to have to compare this shoe to the pro because I'm going to get to the end of this. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of give you my tagline at the end about what I think about this, my take on it. But when I went to the store to buy the, the speed, I noticed the pro was $10 less. Right. So the pro was a $200 shoe. And a month ago, I could have bought the pro for $150 and right next to it, the you speed still, is $160. You still can. Yeah. You still you, can. You can yeah. go on Sakani's website and you can buy the pro, not the pro two. The pro two is 200, but the pro is 150 and the speed is 160. And I started going like, why is that? Why would that be like that? 
you know, when they, when they talk about the pro, they say those are speed running shoes. That's what they categorize it. When they talk about the, the speed, they say it's a neutral running shoe. Mm-hmm. When they talk about the pro, the fastest shoes we've ever built. When you talk about the, the speed, it says run faster, not harder. Um, one little small point, the pro is a vegan shoe. Apparently I'm not going to eat it, but it does make clear that it's vegan and the speed is apparently not vegan. It's probably due to that plate because it's not carbon. Mm. It's a 0.3 ounce difference between the two shoes. Mm-hmm. I most definitely think that is all the plate. That's mm-hmm. about it. That's just the plate carbon versus uh, polymer plate. Um, but here's the deal. The carbon shoe is going to last a shorter period of time. You're going to get less miles out of it. Mm-hmm. And what I think's happened is that Sakani made the speed too good. People loved it. People multiple do love com- that shoe. Multiple comparisons came out and said, don't waste your money on the pro. You're going to get a longer lasting shoe out of the speed. And I also think a lot of shoe stores won't let you test run in the speed or sorry, the pro because it's a carbon shoe. So people gravitated towards the speed. They decided it was good enough. And I think that caused Sakani to have to go crap. How do we, how do we make some differentiation here? And out comes the pro two, out drops the price of the, the pro. And now this is what's really interesting to me. The tagline, the word that they use for the Pro 2 is not speed running shoes, not neutral running shoes, competition running shoes. So they're, they're, they're now further def- differentiating the speed from this Pro 2 faster than your wildest dreams is what they say about it. It's still vegan, but <laughs> it's $200. Critically, it's still vegan. <laughs> it's still vegan. They, they fixed the laces. They change the heel fit a little bit. I typically have issue with heel fit, but I haven't with these shoes. I haven't noticed it at all. So, but, but they did do that. So Michelle's right. They didn't change the shoe much, but they did get rid of that stupid little thing over the tongue. But I, I think this is what we're, what we're seeing here. Sakani came out with these three shoes. People tend to gravitate towards the middle and all product choices that are out there. People tend to gravitate towards the middle because they feel like they're not getting ripped off, but they're not going cheap but this shoe was too good. It was too close to the pro. Um, and, and a lot of people love this shoe. And I, I am in that camp. It was, it was the pick of the litter. The pick um, of the litter. I was, yeah. I'm in that camp. And I'm, and Michelle, you have a pair of these. Is that correct? First huh. of all, can we just briefly pause and just mention that it's Saucony? The Saucony. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, says, says, says the girl who mispronounced quinoa a week or two ago. But That's go fair. Ahead. George wins for quinoa. <laughs> Eric and I lose for quinoa. But Look. we're just going to like talk about Saucony the way that Saucony should be talked about. I spent eight months in South Africa hearing Nike. <laughs> That's horrible. It's Nike. No, it's Nike. Is it Adidas? <laughs> Adidas? Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. I can um, be correct. I wore my speeds when... Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I wore I wore the speeds when I did the virtual Boston. I think um, I had nothing really but good things to say about them in the sense that I wasn't actually racing the marathon, but I also ran 26.2 miles in almost an unworn pair of shoes and didn't really think about my feet. So to me, that's just an indication of a really good pair of shoes. And I've worn them, uh, I don't know, a dozen times since, maybe on a longer run or a longer run with faster miles. Um, I actually, in my mind, they are similar to the Nitro Deviate made by Puma that I've been wearing lately, but 
when I asked Eric to <laughs> put the specs side by side, the response was, these are nothing like the Pumas. So I got to well, figure out. The Pumas have a carbon plate. So. The Pumas are about 120% heavier. The Pumas don't have the stupid little. We exiting Puma fam right now. <laughs> but no, so Michelle, I, I do want to ask you another question. George and I both directly asked you this question earlier, earlier today. And I don't know if you missed it or you didn't want to answer it. George asked you, but which shoe would you race in? Well, I might have missed it because you guys were talking about five different things at once and I couldn't keep up, but <laughs> um, I would race in. If you can't, the... you can't stay in the heat, stay out of the kitchen, Michelle. <laughs> I tend to think that somebody said something along those lines to me during this conversation. But anyway, Michelle, you were saying. I would definitely pick uh, either the Speed or the Pro for race day right now. I've never actually tried the pro. I've never owned the pro. I think I will do the majority of my uh, long runs for Boston in the speed. I just, I have it. It's a shoe that easily, I mean, people run this shoe 400 plus miles all the time. I see it. I, I just see people talking about it. I see it in the reviews. So if it feels really good, I don't have any reason to uh, need a carbon plate uh, to race a marathon in the fall. I think this is a great shoe. And if the improvements that they make to the speed two are what they say that they are, I also felt similar to you, the lacing system, especially up top, although you described it much better than I could have. I mean, I would definitely go for this, for the speed. Also the new color. I'm going to buy the looks pro like... since it's $10 cheaper. <laughs> no, no, George, what you do is you no. wait two weeks and then you buy the speed, buy the speed, the current and just speed. deal and then mm -hmm. use a pair of scissors to cut that stupid little strappy. I, I, I will, I will be surprised if the speed doesn't just sell out. I mean, assuming that they drop the price, well, I think locally people, they can't I, I think people given, given the yeah. way that people love it. I mean, like you, Eric, I mean, you, you, you're gushing over it here and I've seen people gushing over the shoe everywhere. People really, really like this shoe. Um, I've, I've heard Michelle gushing about it. Um, not quite I had as a much friend she gushed say, about the Puma. I was but... hoping you would hate them because we wear the same size. There you go. <laughs> um, and he, he, he wanted to get your cast offs. Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but but um, yeah, I, I imagine as soon as the price drops on these, assuming that they do when the Speed 2 comes out on June 15th, I think people are going to be going out and buying six, seven pairs at a time. We'll but see. even the speed too, I mean, relatively speaking, it's a $150 shoe, right? So, I mean, it'll that's come in at 160. It'll come in at 160. It'll come in at 160, yeah. but that's right there with, I mean, we like the New Balance 1080. I mean, most, you've got a lot of daily trainers up in that 140, 150 yeah. range. I think right. $150, $160 for this shoe that can go, can definitely go a few hundred miles. It's got a plate, it's nylon, it's not carbon, who cares? I mean, I think it's just a great shoe. Yeah, the, yeah, the New Balance 1080 is, is my is my daily yeah, training shoes, just, even though I definitely wear lots of different shoes, uh, as do both of you, um, as, I do, don't think, as do most good runners. Um, yeah. So I don't think the speed is a daily trainer, though. You think, a you lot think of it's people a, wear it a as a daily trainer. trainer. You think and, it's a lightweight maybe, trainer? Yeah, I think, I don't think it's a lightweight trainer. I think it's more of a speed day shoe, but, yeah. but, but then I am a new, a new plated shoe runner. So maybe, maybe I it think is. You, We'll find that when people talk about the speed, they talk about it in the most versatile way. I mean, I would never wear an everything shoe like the DV8 Nitro. Kind of. I mean, I would never. They are wear releasing a like... trail version of the of of this line, the Endorphin Trail, in July on July fifteenth. As George 
tactically prevents himself from saying the name of the brand wrong. <laughs> Saucony? Saucony. Uh, you mean you mean you mean Saucony, the com- the company that was founded in 1898 in Pennsylvania on the high banks of the Saucony Creek? That Saucony? Uh, sometimes I'm, I, I'm familiar. Just... <laughs> I stand corrected. I stand corrected. <laughs> I would hate to be one of your students. <laughs> anyway okay um, i this is not a daily trainer it doesn't function like a new balance 1080 but you can totally get away with it for like a tempo run and also a fast finish long run so i think it's pretty versatile and i think you'll see a lot of people the same way that i wear like my my beacons my new balance brush on beacons exactly i yeah yeah, i wouldn't wear this on a recovery day uh i would wear this so much so if i had a 60 minute run with like, you know, a bunch of three minute pickups in it. I mean, it feels good when you go fast to go mm-hmm. fast in it. Right uh, but yeah. Right okay. So but tell me this, if- this is, this is my one question about the ride of the shoe. When, when the endorphin pros first came out, I heard that they were very responsive. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, responsive is code for hard, um, that, that, that they're not cushy. They're not plush that they actually kind of are hard underfoot. No, this is springy. It's got that, what, PWR run cushioning in it. Mm -hmm. This is, this is not as hard of a feel as a carbon plated Nike. Uh, I can't, I've only run in the carbon plated Nike, but this is not. The carbon plated Nike is squishy. So this is more firm than that, but I don't think people, people talk about the pro that they feel like they really have to break it in. This is not as firm as a carbon fiber and I think that the foam, I think it feels good. I think it feels enough that it's responsive, but it's not like, you know, when the vapor fly, when the 4% first came out and literally your feet were like rolling off the side of it, you're, squishing you're, all over the ground. You, you so couldn't turn. Yeah. You cannot turn in that shoe. Right. Um, yeah. I would say George. So I've run in, I've got the, my sketchers, you know, my mm-hmm. go runs, which are my recovery run shoes. I've also got that of ultra reveras which we won't let michelle talk about those are squishy shoes Mm -hmm. but then i have my adidas boston nines and i have the endorphin speeds those are a firm shoe definitely not hard okay definitely not hard and then i I, i'd put i'm trying to think of a good shoe to well right now george it does not feel anything like either the beacon or the 1080 you would probably classify that as firm compared to those two new balance shoes but i would say that that it's firm and responsive so i think maybe it's hard to use these words and all mean the same exact thing i agree yeah i agree those are they're very subjective terms i agree so is it tell me this is it as hard as the on cloud shoes you've heard those are also very oh no those that's like running on bricks Okay. So, so, so they're definitely not hard as running on bricks all right good at least i think the ons that you and i have tried in the past i believe it's also a relatively I, i've, I've never tried i've about. never tried ons because that's all i've heard is how how brick hard they are that's um, fair i'm like i'm like i would not like those at all i bought so. i wanted to i wanted to love the ons but i still love the way that they look i've just never oh well, yeah they're works of art <laughs> So we, we can talk about them in another week, but I have two pairs of on shoes. I have the cloud boom and the cloud ultra. And I have to say they're not hard. They're definitely not hard shoes. I'm going to have a hard good. time having that conversation. I the, need to the, go try them on. A difficult the ultra, time. A difficult time. The cloud ultra is um, very much like the 1080. And the really? boom, the, 
the boom, it, it is, it's, it's very close to the Boston. It's probably a little more firm than the Boston, but it's very close to the Boston. Too. Oh man. But, right. but that but is where they, that, that is where say... the similarities end that those yeah. shoes are so different. I uh, just, they're, they're very different shoes. Very good. Very good. All right. We have definitely covered the gamut tonight. Um, and, and I appreciate all of our listeners spending so much time with us. And as always, I appreciate Eric and Michelle spending so much time with me. Uh, Eric, last word. Shoot. I, I think I've said so many words. I don't have any last words. Um, looking forward to riding my Tron bike and running more in my endorphin speeds. Awesome. Perfect. Michelle, last word. I, I'm good. <laughs> awesome very good uh thanks y'all for being here thanks for joining us everybody thanks again for listening to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast on twitter at pleasant podcast or on instagram most pleasant exhaustion We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter, at itlcoaching, on Facebook, at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's SlayRx.com, Facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.